Sunday's experts Always know what's best Always tell you what you should have done Monday's experts Always know what's cooking How the game was lost And how it could have been won And when Monday comes around Everyone's an expert in my town Monday's experts It was the big three, the holy trinity the newly evolved Pokemon known as Danger Woodlet against the mind of Alistair Clarkson at the MCG on Monday afternoon. In spite of late heroics from Dangerfield, Ablett and Menzel, the Hawks snuck home thanks to a late behind from skipper Jared Roughhead in a game that left all 73,189 people inside the MCG short of breath. 35 goals were kicked and the team with less of them won the day to cap a fine weekend of Easter football. The round began on Thursday night at the Adelaide Oval with a huge performance from the home side, and it kept us occupied all weekend, wondering who would take what chocolates, while we wondered privately which sibling stole the last lint bunny. In other news, the bag is back. To take it all in, I'm joined by the man who needs no introduction, Gordon Hunter-Meredith. Thank you very much. Uh, Speaking of who stole the chocolates, uh, do you follow Darcy V on Instagram? Uh, I don't. I probably do. Oh, we need to because she she did a almost like a mockumentary about the Easter egg hunt at her house. I think I've seen and some it, of this. Yeah, and it just involved just great details of scripting, great details of uh, of of cinematography, even um, split like face off style split personalities where she was chasing herself, dressed up as a Kit Kat. Just oh, shout outs, great work. And uh, yes, the bag is back. But is that a good thing? I think we'll discuss. The agenda tonight, well, it's pretty jam-packed. We've got a a good old summary of the rematch, but not really the rematch between Richmond and Adelaide. Um, A little sub-question about the grand final location. Again, always a hot topic when Adelaide come anywhere near Richmond. Um, Good Friday, we're going to give that a tick or we're going to give it a cross. We'll go through that and then we'll obviously decode the game that we witnessed today at the MCG, which was an absolute cracker. Um, between Geelong and the Hawks, who seem to always provide something. Um, we've got a double people's question, so we're going to have a little chat about best captain awards, and then we're also going to talk about the AFLW, VFLW rule changes. And finally, book club today is not actually a book, but an article, one of our favourite long-form articles, or maybe it's not. We'll decide whether it is or it isn't. Um, it's an ESPN article about Ben Simmons and the relationship between his basketball and his football. Uh, I think a bit generous saying it was a great weekend of football. I think it was it was a weekend of football top and tailed by great games, much like much like the uh, the creme egg. the The exterior shell at each end of the egg is quite delicious. The interior is a bit leaves a bit to be like desired, and that was that was much like this weekend. That metaphor makes me want to throw up. Um, much like chocolate, actually. Thursday night started it off. With a rematch between Adelaide and Richmond, again, you can call this a rematch, but really I think everyone knows that you can't have the grand final over again, and I think people in the climax or the aftermath of this one have have said as much. But uh, I watched this live. I was lucky enough to go over to Adelaide, which is obviously where my parents live um, and where I grew up as much as it sometimes pains me to admit it. Um, And I think, well, the interesting thing is there's really two ways of experiencing this. I obviously experienced it live, and like any game, I think, between two top-end teams, I felt like this was a game of moments. And then there's obviously the rub-down in the in the aftermath where you go through the raw numbers. So for me, um, the moments really in the first quarter started off with Richmond kicking the first goal, and you always get a very interesting response to uh, travelling teams at Adelaide Oval, and 
the fact that Shane Edwards kicked a little dribbler from the pocket that was beautifully executed was totally lost on the locals to the point that we didn't actually know if it had gone through. Um, but I guess the, the real story out of the first quarter was that Jenkins really started to towel Alex Rance up. Um, a lot of the time he did this by just initiating body contact and I think the Crows were really sensible in not allowing Rance to play as an intercepting player early. They basically forced him to play on a man. And when that's been done in the past last year against Harry Taylor, um, St. Kilda might have done it with Rewald a little bit. It tends to be the situations that Rance struggles in. And of course, that body contact led to a couple of free kicks for Jenkins, but also lots of calls for free kicks. Um, And I think the, the trend in the first quarter for me was that Richmond just looked really poor in the air. Um, comparing this directly to the grand final where they pretty much marked everything that was up. Um, They just weren't able to do that. Um, And I've sort of got written here in my notes that Richmond's back six was a shadow of its grand final self. Um, Worth acknowledging as well that the back six wasn't the back six that they took into the grand final. You had Conker back there. Uh, Vlosten obviously didn't play in this game. And obviously Nathan Broad also wasn't there. Um, And I felt like Corey Ellis and Conker got exposed the large parts of the game, in particularly under high balls. It's interesting that you say that Richmond's defence was a shadow of what they were in the grand final, because the more positive spin to that is that Adelaide's forward line showed up, yeah. and that was the that were the storylines coming into this game, saying that would yeah, were the scars too deep? Were they were they too mentally fractured from that big loss, or we're going to play to the actual capabilities? And in in well, not in reality because you can't re simulate it, but. If they had played like that in the grand final, I don't think our backline marks everything above their head. No, I absolutely. think that you see that, and especially yeah. when you have the likes of Jenkins and even you know the terrible Tex Walker actually had a pretty decent game as well. So you got two of those tall guys that are actually pretty pretty nimble around the ground. Mm. They create two focal points in the forward line, and it just lets them structure much better. Yeah, we dropped off ten percent, and they went up about twenty percent. No, absolutely, because I think the other aspect of this is when we look fumbly under the high ball. I think we looked fumbly to an extent because there was a chance of copping a knee in the back of the head. Yeah, and so there was a definite like anything in football that wasn't just we were bad and they were like it wasn't just we were bad. There's an element of both and yeah. the, the yin and the yang of this, and I think that really shone through. Um, the second quarter, again, the Crows sort of clawed away. Richmond clawed back, and then the Crows clawed away again, and that was very much on the back of some good work from the Texan and Jenkins. Um, the Texan, I think, there was a big moment where he threw David Asprey off like a feather in the wind um, and marked him one hand while he was throwing him away with the other. Um, Jenkins kicked a couple here, which were really important, and then the other thing that happened was the first report of the game, which was Fogarty's hit on Caddy. Um which I said at the time was so late, it would have been late in fast-forward mode. Um, he didn't get suspended. Um, and I guess the kind of maybe a little bit of gentle irony is that Caddy did walk away from this game with a one-game ban. Um, with that, it was a later hit, but obviously it was like, it was. do you think it should deserve a oh, report? No, 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 I just no. thought it was weak. Like, it was it, when I say it was late, it was like very late. Like, it was an elbow and I'm going to give you everything you can cop in the side. Mm. When like while you're not expecting it at all because you took the mark three seconds ago, sort of five. So, yeah, I thought it was cheap. I don't think it deserved a suspension by any stretch. I, but, yeah, I got a 50-meter penalty and a goal, which is, I think, where it, yeah. you know, what it deserved. Um, the third quarter, so really interestingly, halftime, you had the feeling that Richmond had been sort of outplayed by enough that they could have been further behind. Um, the third quarter, I actually thought was Richmond's best of the game, but they kicked 1-5. And that was sort of... Um, I guess the, one of the focal points of that was Jack burning two teammates on the left-hand side of the forward 50 and missing the lot with a banana. Um, 
But again, Richmond managed to free Rance up after halftime. So he actually managed to get some separation and then became a really dangerous player as a, as a rebounder and going the other way. And that turned the game. The problem was it didn't turn the game on the scoreboard for Richmond. And as this sort of watched, as I watched this, it became more apparent what was going on. Adelaide were taking a lot of uncontested marks and they were willing to move the ball really, really slowly. Um, I think it's been called this chip and chase. Might have been what they labelled it on Fox Footy where they were kicking and the bloke who had kicked it would just run on and get a hand pass. And they were a lot more willing to play a slow game. Adelaide, they didn't look to run off halfback and just kill the game and go really quickly. They were happy to just, again, play a little bit of a game of attrition, which kind of ironically is what Richmond used to do. Mm. It was that game plan that Richmond used to play. So in a way, there's an irony in the fact that that became their undoing. Um, the fourth quarter, and I guess if you speak about moments, this this was a quarter that was full of them. And... Oddly enough, at three-quarter time, I really fancied us, despite the fact that we were 20 points down and we'd been pretty much outplayed. Um, the Crows gave up a lead in round one. But again, this started with a drop mark from Eddie Betts, um, who a lot of the Adelaide supporters felt was poor, but he did have three score involvements. Anyway, he dropped a mark, and then Richmond went up the other end. Dusty kicked his fourth. And then a minute, minute later, um, basically Lambert hit the post with a dribbler, and from the the ensuing kick-in and the ball came back in after the kick-in. Uh, Dusty got his fifth basically off a crumb of bobbling handballs around the goal square. Now at that point, because I was watching this at the London Tavern in Richmond, Richmond's home pub, yeah, full of the actual Richmond cheer squad, everyone was going mental. And if you, if you look at the Fox footy coverage after that fifth goal, there is no celebration from Dusty. He just runs past his teammates, gives them this very like, brave heartian type stare and then just has like a really confident lick of his lips essentially just being like essentially just being like I'm on your boys like just kick it to me and I'll, I'll get us home um, and then he, he didn't do anything else well that, so. I mean he was thrown forward to start the quarter which resulted yeah. in those two goals which were number four and five and then he went to the bench the the moment this really tipped so at this point Richmond were down by uh, eight points nine points they were within two kicks and then good old David Asprey Basically, just stubbed his toe, which I like. I actually don't know how he's done this at, at an AFL level, but he um. Had if, you a, if you had to watch some of the other games this weekend, you'd understand how he's done this. This is true. It's because, not that hard. But in this game, this was really poor. It stood out. Um, but he basically had two Richmond players on on the fat side. If he hits them, I would argue that it's nearly a goal Richmond's way because they had the chain. They had two players completely with no one mm. near them. They had a massive overload. He stubbed his toe. Ball landed. It kind of went backwards and towards his own goal. So it was like a double whammy. And then obviously Taylor Walker got there first, managed to dodge him, unleash from 50, goal. And at that point, like the momentum and the tone just changed. Like everyone in there was like, oh, we're fine now. Like Texas kicked a goal. And then it was such a demoralizing moment, like for a fullback to do that. Mm. Um, it's just a massive whack around the chops. And as much as everyone goes and they went, I noticed on the replay, everyone goes and tries to pick him up. But like, there's no coming back from that when you know the consequences of giving up a goal at that point. Because if Richmond kicked the next goal there, they, they win. Like, mm. there's no doubt. Because the, the alarm bells are ringing, the crowd has gone like, <laughs> capish. That brings them back. And then I guess from that era, I reckon the last 15 minutes for Richmond were really poor. Like, they were error riddled, couldn't be clean with the ball. Sloan kicked a goal from the pocket, which looks better than it was because of the shallowness of the pockets, but it's a still, like, it's a fair shot from a drop punt from the angle that he was on. Um, from an out on the full kick that Richmond had, and then um, I guess the real, like, nail in the coffin was Dusty trying a don't argue right below where I was sitting, and he basically got slammed into the turf by three Crows players, and at that point, it was just, like, game over. And you can see that 
Crow supporters really thirsted on that. Like that was like not just we're beating you. That was like here we are and we've just mauled your best player and he's now lying on the ground and he's powerless to stop us. I was nervous going into that game as a Richmond fan because I was like, this is the game we could probably lose. I rated Adelaide a lot better than what they performed in round one against Essendon. Yeah. But I also thought that this doesn't really tell us anything. No. Because if we win, then we're the reigning premiers. We go 2-0. Everyone expected that. If we lose, it's like, well, Adelaide was meant to beat us last in the grand funnel and they did that and they're playing it at home and they played at home really well. So like th- that was the that was the expected result for for all intents and purposes, minus all of the like mythology around grand final replays and yeah, yeah, yeah. and mental scars and that kind of thing. So I don't think we know anything really about those two players, especially when one team had such a poor poor performance based on what their best is. That being Richmond. Yeah, and I think and this is where it was really stark when you look at the stats post game. The Crows were plus forty eight in contested ball, which is just huge. Plus 102 in uncontested ball, which I think is just a mark of how they tried to play. And they were also plus 54 in marks. Um, and the inside 50s, to be fair, stayed very even until the junk time. So Adelaide had the last seven scoring shots and ended up being on top of the inside 50s by 15. But for the majority of the game, they were shot like a narrow part ahead in that statistic. Now, this is something I'll bring up with the Hawthorne Geelong game as well, is that I think we need to kind of recapitulate what important stats are important now. And I don't think raw possession numbers, so contested ball yeah. and uncontested possessions, you can be up you know, plus 48, plus 102. That's very Hawthorne-like, like there were today. Even the inside 50s, like a 20-plus or a 15-plus uh, difference, doesn't mean much if your efficiency going inside 50 is is far greater than the opponent's. So yeah, yeah. some teams like, like Richmond's, like Adelaide's, like the Bulldogs, like Collingwood need a lot of inside 50s to get goals. Some teams like Geelong... Don't. don't yeah. So it really just depends on what game style you play. If you play, if you play a, a really high meters per possession game, I think you need to check. You need to, you need to market those stats differently. And yeah. really, I think all of it comes down to this year. It's a very small sample size. So I might jump in the gun, but I think as I mentioned previously, those three, those three efficiency stats with ball in hand and in clangers. So your points per inside yeah. fifty and your goal accuracy, plus how many clangers you make will be the three indicators that really will tell us who's on and who's not this year as opposed yeah. to our traditional more possession-based games. I think we're moving away from that Hawthorne dynasty style of play. I think that's yeah. that's reached its end point as a, as a style of play. I think that the contested ball numbers are telling here, though, because in the grand final, Richmond were plus 30. It'd be interesting to set a pressure point number instead of just contested. Yeah, ball, but, but I don't think Richmond's pressure was great no, around right. the ball no. because I think Adelaide took enough uncontested marks to nullify their ability to actually apply that pressure. Um, but the swings were there. I think the so I mean, what are the takeaways? Um, I guess that Richmond now have to find some answers to how Adelaide elected to play them. Like, and I think they'll be talent challenged in this department by Hawthorne. Like, teams have just seen them; they haven't lost since what round seventeen last year in Geelong. So teams are now looking at this and going, okay, this is it. Someone's finally done it. Hawthorne can come out next week and they'll try and do the same thing. And I think they probably have the skill set to do that. Um, so it creates some really interesting challenges for Richmond. I, I think it's a good test of where they're at. Um, I think Angela Pippos probably said this best, though, from a Crow's point of view. This was less about revenge and more about not wanting to be zip and two. Yeah. And I think that sums it up. And Josh Jenkins said something similar, like you're never going to change the grand final result. It makes it, if anything, this makes it more frustrating. But by the same token, I think there are so many different factors here. Both teams were heavily down on personnel. 
So I think Richmond were probably four players down on their best 22, and I think the Crows were maybe five. So how they shape up at full strength is, again, miles off. Um, So I think there's a variable there. Um, And I guess that for me, this felt like a a top-end clash, as you would probably expect for two teams that played in a grand final six months ago. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if both of these teams... I'm not maybe not top four, but I think they'll both definitely finish top six. I've got no doubt. Yeah, about that. Top four probably. Although I feel like the way that the competition's unfolding, you're starting to feel like if you go the early crow, there's only one spot left in the top four, in my opinion. So the people's sub question out of this was just a quick note on grand final location, and I just have been itching to have a rant about this after three days in Adelaide. this is such a rubbish proposition. Like, so the proposition is the proposition is that the grand final should be played at the home ground of the team that finishes higher on the ladder. Okay. Okay. So the first reason this is rubbish is because contractually it's going to be at the MCG for the next nineteen years, no matter how much anyone wants to whinge about it. Yeah. Right? That's number one. Secondly, an Adelaide Oval grand final wouldn't feature forty five thousand Crows fans. So it's like when people talk about let's have the grand final at Adelaide Oval, like they're envisaging. 48,000 Crows fans and 1,000 Richmond fans like they have on most nights there. Which is not what it'll be because you have 20,000 corporates plus AFL members plus Medallion Club members. So you'd be looking at like 10,000 from each club at best. Then you're locking 50,000 people out. So I'm just not sure that that argument holds up at all. Like it's not, that's not what, you're not going to get what you got in round two if you host the grand final that low level. Like, and I think that's what people are thinking when they talk about it. Yeah, I do think there is... I agree. The best the best stadium to watch football when it's full in Australia is the MCG. There's no doubt about that. It's just the economy of scale. The noise that yeah. 100,000 people make is more than the noise that 50,000 people make. That's go, simple. Go figure. Go figure. But I do think if the AFL is getting more and more serious about becoming the actual national sport, then I think you would want to have stakes bid for the grand final. And therefore... Like at the end of the day, the only reason why we get a hundred thousand people to the grand final in, in in Melbourne is because a Melbourne's population is the second biggest in the country, b it's our main sport as in AFL or Aussie Rules football, and then and then c there's a high possibility that it could be two Melbourne teams. Yeah, there is a higher possibility of that be two Melbourne teams. Yeah, but also when it comes to yeah filling the corporates and all that kind of stuff, the casual support will always want to go. That same thing, in, and based on scale, applies to the rest of the states, though. So if you go to Adelaide, there's less population there. So as a Melbourne person, if my team's not in the grand final, I'm probably not likely to go and get a ticket to go to an Adelaide grand final. True. And it makes it easier for them to get to a grand final because it's much harder for them to fly across and get come to a Melbourne grand final, et cetera, et cetera. I think, I think there is merit in saying that you, you should bid and it should rotate and, you know, Next year it's Adelaide. Next year it's at the Perth Stadium. Especially at the Perth Stadium's got seventy thousand seater. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I my my only thing, and this is kind of the next point: the draw in the home and away isn't even. Like it's not an even draw. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, not so, no, 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 the no, higher no, place. What though, I'm yeah. saying is, yeah. So like, I don't hate the concept of like shopping it around, but I think that like it shouldn't just be the team that finishes higher because Richmond played Adelaide in Adelaide last year and didn't play them in the MCG. Like, so the draw isn't even. Like, you can't argue that... Like, you can... Okay, yes, you finish on top, you finish on top. But Mm. that's not based on an even draw. The whole competition is designed for that to reset 
at the start of the finals so that one and two are the same and three and four are the same and five and six are the same and all the rest. So I think until you, in like, if you, like, you can change that system and then you could say, okay, yeah, let's do that. And then if you finished highest, you go there and that you have a home grand final. But until that's the case, I don't think that's a fair way. I would, however, be happy with them to do. And the only suggestion I liked in relation to this was similar to what they do with the Super Bowl, hmm. where for every team that a state has in the competition, you get the grand final that amount of times in an 18-year period. Yeah. So in an 18-year period, Melbourne has 10, Adelaide has 2, Perth has 2, Queensland has 2, New South Wales has 2. Like yeah. That would, to me, be a fair and reasonable way. I don't think it's going to happen um, because of the capacity. Like If you had a grand final between Port and Adelaide in Melbourne you would get more Port, Port Adelaide supporters and more Adelaide supporters into the ground than you would if that game was at Adelaide Oval. I understand, yes, they all have to drive here. Why does it matter how people get in for the AFL? Because you make they make most of their money off the sponsorship, TV rights, and the advertising. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't matter day. for the AFL. It matters for the people. Yeah, but for, for, for Adelaide people, would they not enjoy a grandfather being in their home state more than it having to come to Melbourne for We could it. ask some Adelaide people, because I'm not really speaking, but I would just say that more of them are going to get in if they have it here. Hmm. But, like, how good is Grand Final Week here in Melbourne? And how, and how yeah, good, yeah, and how good, how good yeah. would it be for other people to experience that in their home state? And they know that, you know, this becomes Grand Final Week for us. And we get it, you know, twice every every 18 years. Again, no problem. I feel like it's an opportunity for, for the AFL to really ingrain the culture of this sport as the main sport. If they're set on dominance, which they seem to be in all of their outward public speaking, then I feel like this is an opportunity for them to be like, you know what? We're going to take over. We're going to, we're going to stomp rugby union. We're going to stomp rugby league. We're, we're going to be the sport. Would the AFL grand final generate the clout that it generates if it was played in another state? Absolutely. If, if especially, honest, especially, especially in South Australia and WA, it, when it when it's played at the SCG, then that's that's the issue. What's that going to be like? Yeah, you that's, know, like that's that my be, question. That will be the issue. Oh, Adelaide. Okay, yeah. If they had it, it doesn't bother me. My the problem is if they had it, and this is where this model. Okay, great. You've got it. You're not guaranteed to have either of your teams in there. Do, hmm. you, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you might get you might get Richmond and Collingwood. Like, and it still could be an amazing grand final. Oh, I have absolutely no doubt. I just, I think that the premise of what people are expecting to get when they say that the grand final shouldn't always be the MCG isn't in parallel with what is realistically a good model for it. Yes, is yes. generally the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. Um, because again, and as you have the league at the moment, it has to be a neutral grand final. With like a, a system that seeds the teams before you get to the final series. Yeah, but when you say that the MCG is not a neutral ground, it's it's ten teams home ground. Yeah, but I mean, this is the, the whole like argument is oh Richmond play eighteen home games. No, they don't. They play like seven home games, and then they play ten that are a neutral game against a Melbourne team at a venue that has fairly even supporters. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but, so they, no, but in terms of everything else for the like the, in terms of the advantages of playing at home, it's not so much the crowd. Because depending on which club you are, I think playing at home for Collingwood is actually a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Things like that. It's it's the routine and it's the ease of like of of game day. So like you don't have to go to a hotel. You it's don't more the travel. Bus. Yeah. You don't have to go. You don't, yeah. yeah. Recovery is easier. Preparation is easier. The whole week is easier if you're playing at home. Yeah. I mean, the hardest thing about this is a hypothetical discussion. Is you're never going to have a competition where you have 18 teams that have the exact same set of circumstances because you've got 
because of the way the competition was designed. Like, they didn't go and take five teams from Adelaide and five teams from yeah, Melbourne and exactly, five teams yeah. from Sydney. Yeah. And therefore, all those teams have to travel to all of those other... The competition is inherently not going to be perfectly even hmm. because of those variables. And it just... There's kind of like a case of it is what it is. Like, as much as you want to talk about it, and there's a Victorian advantage, it's like, well, it is. Like, like that's just... It is what it is. Like... You're not going to be able to change it without fundamentally kicking five teams out and adding three in random places and good luck, like kicking any of the Melbourne teams out at the moment. Fair contest. Play on. Let's move on to Good Friday. Gordon. Yes. Did you go on Good Friday? I went on Good Friday. I went on oh. Easter Saturday and Easter Sunday. Well, I watched this mm. by that I mean I fell asleep on the couch after the first 15 minutes and woke up at the end of the game so so I took a friend and uh, his first response about 15 minutes in was why did you bring me here Gordon this is the worst football I've seen ever live and I was like that's because you asked me to Jason that's um, pretty comprehensive I yeah, like it yeah pretty comprehensive so okay I also uh, that, like that it was your fault. That makes you makes it makes it sound like you kidnapped him and held him to ransom. Yes. Like you're coming to the footy. So yeah, the crowd was down, the football was of lowish quality and for no real good reason. It wasn't like it was a pressure cooker game. It's just like both teams it felt like everyone who was there, from spectators all the way through to presenters, players, umpires, coaches, like everything was stale. It was. It was. We got to about yeah. It's it's like a four o'clock ish kickoff, and we are like the hot cross bun on the table since breakfast, and you bite into it at four, and it's like oh, it's still a hot cross bun. Like it's still got all the ingredients to be a delicious morsel that will give me joy for a, a period of time, but because I've left it out there and no one's cared about it for the last little bit, it's not very tasty, and that's how that game was. I and like so the analogy. Everyone said like you know do we have to get rid of Good Friday football? I think you give it to someone who actually cares about it. And so it's, there's an interesting parallel with a different event. So the Comedy Festival the comedy festival kicked off this weekend, but it's always the previews at this stage because everyone leaves Melbourne for Easter. Like, a large majority of people yeah. go on holiday. And this is why I don't... So why have it at a big stadium? Why not take it... So we had, we had North Melbourne versus the Bulldogs. I like this. Play this at Ballarat. The store gifts on this weekend, so you have make it a massive multi multi sport festival, or you take it to Tassie because the Tassie has massive Easter festivals as and well. And we love Tassie, and we love Tassie, and I think North should go to Tassie full time. I kind of agree with you because I felt like this was awkward. Like four o'clock, it's like I kind of wanted it to be Friday night, but then I kind of was like, actually, you know what? I'm not. I don't really mind if there's footy today, which is weird because I've always been like, oh, why don't we play on Good Friday? It doesn't make sense. But now I'm kind of like, well, like. I can have one day off, can't I? Like over my Easter... Like, because you get Thursday night, which you don't normally get, right? And then you get Monday, which is like a... Kind of now its own, like, thing. Mm. I'm just not sure that this was... Like, I'm not sure that this is quite as ingrained as it... Like, maybe it hasn't become ingrained yet, but I don't necessarily... I don't feel the need. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And over the four... Over the four... The three games that I saw this weekend, and probably the same for the Carlton Gold Coast game, so we had four games in Melbourne in between the Thursday and the Monday. I feel like all of them could have... This could have been country round for all intents and purposes. This is the one week where... This is the one week of the year other than Christmas yeah. where metropolitan people leave metropolitan cities and go on for extended breaks because yeah. you have a guaranteed four-day four break. Yeah, absolutely. So you take this to 
you Ballarats, you Wangaratas, you take it to the ACT, you take it up to, to probably not Queensland because you're still in rainy season. You take it, you make sure you got a game in Perth, you make sure you got yep. two games in Adelaide, maybe. Well, the thing is, the Thursday night. Well, I feel like if you just put a night game on any night in Adelaide, it's going to work. Because yes. people just want to go to the footy and then they get one chance. So, like, and the Thursday night always works because it's generally before people have gone away. Exactly. So, this that's why the Thursday, Monday. And the Monday always bookends. works because most people are back. Like, exactly. if you're invested in Geelong or Hawthorne, you come back on Monday morning to be at that game. Mm. Like, but in terms of getting bums on seats to create an atmosphere that's worthwhile, if you're saying to someone, come watch Collingwood versus GWS. On a Saturday afternoon, which means I can't go away that weekend. Yeah. So what do you you don't you just don't take it up? Yeah, and I think. And so young, if Collingwood had been better this year, then perhaps more people would go. But still, it's like, oh, I'll see them again next week or the week after yeah. or week after that. Yeah. So I, this is the one week I would take. I would I would have a festival of footy. Like going watching five games in five days is amazing fun if you're a football fan. It's great. But I think the AFL needs to be smart about who they can give this to, and it's a great opportunity to give this to people that don't usually get football. And they, they make such a deal of it at the JLT. You've gone to those grounds, you've worked out how to present the games there, how to do the television coverage from there, how to get into facilities up to a certain standard. Then just do it. And this is the round where you actually make it yeah. for points. Interesting. I like it as an idea because I think one of the big positives out of this is the Good Friday appeal and the money they raise for some yes. kids and the players going into hospitals, etc. And they had two kids in the press conferences, and yeah. uh, which is like, that, that stuff's, stuff's really, nice. really great. And I think you can have this in a reformatted way without losing that. Because, like, I don't know, I I don't know, maybe I'm having a dip at North again, but, like, 33,000, just under 34 for a, for a marquee game. Like, that's massive unders. Hmm. Like, okay, yes, there's problems potentially with the time slot, with the number. But, like, as much as people want to hail this as a success for North, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not really sure it is. Like, this is telling me that you have a chance to draw 50,000 to Eddie Hat and sell the place out, and you can't do it. Yeah. Like, and I'm sorry, but, like, why? And then, so, okay, so if we've got this and we want to keep this as a North Marquee game, how do we do it? I think the country idea is a really good idea. Yeah. Um, the quality of the football, though, was something else, and I think that doesn't help. For- yeah, but you also can't control for that, and I, I, don't, no, think, I don't think people actually care because there have been games, and again, we're going to talk about the, today's game a bit later on, but that, that Easter, Sunday, Easter Monday game has actually been, like, the average winning margin in the last... Nine matches being like fifty points, like they're usually blowouts. It's been the first cracker in a while. Yeah, like since the days where both of these teams were like competing. For but they football. consistently get seventy thousand plus. Yeah. So that yeah, the skill of the teams yeah. is not the reason. You you and the same with Anzac Day. Like Essendon and Collingwood haven't been pushing for a premiership in years. Yeah. But they always draw a massive crowd. So that yeah, to use the skill level as an excuse for the crowd in a marquee game that have penciled in early on doesn't make much sense. No. But overall, the whole weekend, there's, there is concerns, especially as, yeah, especially going forward for the rest of the year, that there are too many teams that do not play a high enough standard of football. And it's very interesting to hear how quiet the noise has been. So, yeah, I went to yeah North and St Kilda, which was a fizzer and had heaps of errors. I went and saw Collingwood as a GWS. GWS doesn't work out how to play the MCG yet. Collingwood had yet another massive injuries. Um, and again, that game was just messy. It was exciting because it was close, but it wasn't a great spectacle. I think, you've got a, I think there's a really something to be really wary of in football in when you're assessing it is like 
was it enjoyable because of the skills or was mm. it enjoyable simply because you had that intensity of yeah. margin closeness that draws you into the spectacle? And the same on the Sunday with between the Bulldogs and West Coast. Again, that was different because people were saying that's a blowout. Was, it was yuck. But actually, West Coast skills were actually quite entertaining and they have four players in that lineup who actually are worth just paying to go watch. Yeah. But we had one game in AFLW and suddenly we had a memo go around saying we need to we need to create zones, we need to create these things, open the game up. We had four, we had three days of consistently bad football, and no one mentioned changing the rules or yeah. having sixteen players or anything like that. So absolutely, again, there's a hypocrisy there with the AFL just being like this product's good, we know it's good, and and just a laziness or a latency to be actually yeah. let's check what's actually going on here and make sure that we're doing everything our powers to make sure the product is, is as good for potential viewers, sponsors, participants, all that kind of stuff. And I reckon the biggest difference here is that the AFL feels like the AFLW is always under the microscope with every single game that's played, whereas in the AFLM, if you just whinged, people would say, oh, you get some good eggs and you get some bad eggs. And yeah. the AFL are confident that their good eggs are good enough. And I, I think it's disappointing that the responses are so different. Yeah, um, yeah I think... There's, a, there's obviously a real massive issue there in terms of how these things are viewed because if you started talking about we have to bring in zones KB would be on the radio with a hot take like first thing tomorrow morning like mm. bang don't do that so moving on from Good Friday to Easter Monday yes correct well, I've taken this in and this was just absolutely unreal um, I feel like there were times when the Hawks could have kicked away and they didn't and on the flip side of that I can't believe Geelong managed to claw themselves back from the brink like two or three times in the game. And to be honest, at the end, I I walked away just like, how wow, like was just the general emotion. Like I think this was really high scoring. Um, there were some standout individual performances, like the midfield battles here. And we talked about the Holy Trinity in the introduction. But they threw Ablett, Danger, and Selwood in to start the game. They were back in at the end of the game. And then you had O'Meara and Mitchell going at it for the Hawks, um, often with one other who was generally... I'm trying to think who it was on a few different occasions. I wrote it down. Um, But there were just some massive smackdowns. Like, this was just brilliant. And some of the contests in the last quarter were huge. Yeah, and it's interesting. I think a lot of people in the media and in general, general fans and pundits, need a, they owe Gary an apology because everyone thought that this was a bit of a gimmick trade, that his best days are over. Even on most of the radio previews this afternoon, they were like, oh, he's not playing in his best. And I was like, in the last five years, he's averaged 35 touches a game. Yeah. Every single game he's played in five years. Yeah. The guy is probably the best midfielder we've ever seen. And then today, he racks up 30-plus again and kicks a goal and almost single-handedly draws his draws his team across the line. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, Danger kicks two goals and has probably less influence. And what people what people don't, I think, quite grasp is that, yes, Paddy breaks over pack with, with speed and a bit of strength. But what he does next to the ball is nowhere near as impressive as what Gary does with it. Next to the ball or what he does on the outside with the ball. Oh, that does next with the ball. What he, so what like, what he what does he, on the outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I agree with that because watching today, I thought I thought Dangerfield, some of his efforts in close in terms of getting the ball were spectacular. Mm. Like, like how has he got that handball out? Yeah. But I didn't think he was anywhere near as damaging on the outside. To the point that the Geelong supporters in front of me were genuinely like, oh my God, I wish Dangerfield could kick. Mm. Which is a little bit of an overreaction. But it's, no, but but it's true. If you, look, if you go not, back and look through the efficiency yeah. of his kicking, he's not... He is a grunt midfielder. He's not as damaging as people have 
people have this belief that he's incredible on the outside mm. and his kicking is not superb at the moment. There are times when he does pull kicks out and you go, wow. But generally, Ablett's ball use is better and he has all of that stuff on the inside. And I thought... I mean, today I thought they were both excellent for Geelong, but I would have given the points to Ablett if you'd asked me to, purely yeah. because the amount of time... Danger did butcher the ball like five, six, seven times mm. like from his whatever he had, 30-odd touches. Um, I mean, Tim Kelly for Geelong, who's a 23-year-old recruit, mature-age draft pick. They took him in the 20s in the draft. Was He was really, really noticeable. And he was probably really, I thought, their fourth mid, like below the big three. He was the one, obviously, with Duncan not playing that I thought was getting a lot of ball and really making things tick for Geelong. Um, I thought really the story of the first half was Impey. Jarman Impey was superb. Like the amount of times he got the ball and he just had that speed. He reminded me a little bit of Dylan Shield, not just because they both were the number four, but like on the outside, he'd just get it and he he just had that speed away from the contest and then a little bit of class to match and he kicked a couple of goals. He was just everywhere and really lively early. Isaac Smith, I love as a runner. And I think that was one of the differences here. I just felt like Hawthorne had a little bit more on the outside all day than, than the Cats. Also, just as a team in general, I think that Hawthorne have built their tactics and their structure around being an outside team. So their decision-making off half-back is a, lo- is a lot quicker. Yes. So they, they look like they're a faster team, yeah. like they can run faster, but it's actually their ball movement that gives that perception. That's yeah. the difference to Geelong, where... Like Geelong is just as powerful, just as quick in terms of physicality, but the the decision making today, especially transitioning from halfback into the into forward movement, was just slower. Yeah, and their their kickouts today for Geelong were diabolical. Like they basically not a fan of the big tall. Well, this is really the the point because what they did in the first quarter was they went the first half was they went long down the line like every single time and they didn't have anything else and Hawthorne always had that short kick option to the pocket and they'd find three or four kicks and Geelong really didn't defend that well Mm. they didn't really allow themselves for a team that last year was really good pressure wise they didn't allow themselves to put forward pressure on until the last 20 minutes when like everything was happening for them but in that second half someone in the Geelong rooms went well just kick the bloody thing up the middle and if we win the contest we score and if we don't win they score and bugger it because what we're doing at the moment is boring and it's not helping anyone and that was where you saw the torp that nearly landed in the centre square the funny thing is if you just throw that chaos ball like okay yeah it is it is risky but from a Geelong point of view I reckon you'd back yourselves to win that contest like a lot of the time yeah but that's not a great structure though no, no, I'm not saying it is, but now the team's no. But like, you can't play two up every kick out. That's well, Gordon. I think you should bring <laughs> back that. Bring back the torp. I say. Um, but it, I mean, the reality there was Geelong had to change something, and they did. And I guess it could have gone either way. For a time, it looked like uh, it wouldn't work. But in the end, you can only say that they did get back into the game. But that was probably one of the biggest things for me. Is like there were times where I just was like, Geelong weren't defending. Like this was. I think it was well, there are tons of both teams are defending. That's why everyone's going, this is an amazing game. And again, it's an amazing game because of the great mix of circumstance, timing, and and the contest. But in terms of like the skill sets of both teams, these are bottom half, top eights, maybe, I think, maybe yeah. even nine and ten teams. I think, no, I think they're bottom half of the eight. But I also think that pressure was largely absent until the last 20 minutes yeah. when it's kind of like a given because the game's on the line. And that was when you started to see the really hard contested work 
a lot of the clearances early, as much as you were kind of, and I was forever like taking notes and like, oh, who's here and who's there? And oh my God, they've got these three and they've got these three. It was like, there was a little bit of smackdown about it, but it was also very, a lot of the clearances were pretty clean. Like you'd get it and it would go forward. And there's, there wasn't like a lot of repeat stoppage. Exactly. Um, and I think that was, and I think both of those sets of midfielders like kind of were just happy to be like, okay, if this goes our way, we'll have it. And if it goes your way, then bugger it. Like there was a little bit of that about it. Um, Again, very good to watch, very entertaining to watch, lots of goals and a grandstand finish. You just wonder against a team that applies better pressure, how their skills would stand up. And I guess, yeah, I mean, both of those teams really struggle to contain the other at times. Hmm. Um, Which is concerning going for the rest of the year, but that's for the coaches to work out, I suppose. Yeah, and like... You know, it, it, it's an isolated game as well. Like, I would be surprised if Ge- Geelong's pressure doesn't pick up. That's two weeks in a row, though. They were pretty poor pressure-wise yeah, in Melbourne. Exactly. And that, I don't know whether that then becomes a trend or whether there's been a reinvention in terms of what they want to do. My only question is, if you've tried to reinvent, why is pressure the thing that you've gone away from? If they back themselves skill-wise. This, this, is, this is adopting the Hawthorne style model. And, like, the question is, can it work? Yeah. Like, because Hawthorne never won the contested ball, and they won three three grand finals in a row. So it, it can work so long as you're, you are skillful enough. Are Geelong skillful enough? Based on today, you'd say Probably no. Not. And their, their keystone players are players that are better on the inside than the outside. So it's an interesting tactic to, to try and take on. Yeah. But maybe it's worthwhile trying at this stage of the season and then you can revert back to what is the baseline if necessary and hope that maybe the your baseline for skills on the outside is lifted by the time you get to 16, 17 yeah. onwards. And I also think for Geelong having fallen at the prelim final hurdle two years in a row. And this is maybe similar to GWS, but I'd probably argue GWS are different. But like when Richmond lost the three elimination finals, they went and changed something. And I feel like Geelong are at that point. Like if you do the same thing twice, it doesn't work at that hurdle. I think you have to try and do something. Like it might not work, but you're better off to, as Damien Hardwick would say, go backwards and then go forward. Um, the people's questions for today, well, we... So boy, oh, boy, wow, we. Boy, oh, boy, indeed. We've basically got one each here. So I've had a little look at the uh, the AFLPA Best Captain Award. question here is, are these really necessary? And I'm just not sure that they are. And I don't mean that as a mark of disrespect to Taylor Walker or Daisy Pearce, who I think in recent weeks have both shown their caper- capabilities as leaders. But, like, really the question here is of the voting system like how are players from opposition clubs in the best position to judge the leadership credentials of people they have no relationships with from opposing clubs like that to me is a flawed premise the voting sense sorry the voting system is kind of out of sync with the nature of modern leadership which is really about harnessing relationships and i think and maintaining individual relationships on that point it ignores the intricacies of the whole deal so it, in, it it doesn't take into account the things that you never see if you're outside the four walls um i guess it probably leaves you relying a little bit on a results b overt leadership like who's screaming and pointing at what points in a game which i don't necessarily think is the style of every single person in the afl it's also not captaincy it's just directing it's just talk. directing yeah. just you know that you're one of the blokes in the team that knows the structure quite well so it's your job, which is a form of leadership. Those things really, is at an AFL level, are expected from all your players. players like yeah. they're not just expected from your captain. It's very nice to say, look at Luke Hodge doing this, but like realistically, he was in a Hawthorne team where there was eighteen other people doing exactly the same. Exactly. Thing exactly. And I guess that's probably my final thing. Like, 
there's a kind of a cap, he's a good captain. Like he that the best captain at Richmond wouldn't be the best captain at Collingwood because he doesn't have relationships with. If Cochin got traded to Collingwood tomorrow and I would cry my eyes out, he wouldn't go and be captain of Collingwood because he hasn't fostered those relationships over five, ten years that he's built at Richmond. It is interesting, he though, when, build- when players get traded, though, they do often go straight into leadership groups, though. So, like, Rockcliffe went from Brisbane into Port Adelaide, leadership group to leadership group. Interesting. And that's happened quite a few times, where players yeah. players who who are senior players who get traded, like Delidio went straight into GLS's leadership group. So yeah, that probably won't be captain because that's obviously the. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is branding as well. Like it's very, it's very strange for a captains to get traded unless you're the Bulldogs. And in which case, it's totally normal. Yeah. And and B for to a traded player to become captain because like well, not only is it are they leading the club as a club that I have no connection with yet. Yeah. So yeah, I I feel like this whole thing is a bit of branding in in a way. Well, it's it is. Like, it's like it's, a branded award. It's like a, the the great bloke or the courageous person. Yeah, like I just don't get it because like the other thing I would say is if you've got eighteen AFL clubs, I would imagine with the resources that are available to all eighteen AFL clubs that most of the AFL captains are pretty good leaders. The mm. so the criteria you judge them on is often, as we saw in the Cochin case, results which, again, is not really a great barometer of leaders because I believe that you can be a good leader in a very poor team. Because ultimately, I don't think football is won by just leadership. Like, no. people have to go and kick the football. Like, and no amount of, oh, mate, we're such good mates. Let's go have a coffee. I'm your captain. Like, this is great. Like, yeah. that's not going to make the bloke... Like, it will help him kick... Maybe it's 5%. And that's kind of... Like, so when you're giving the best captain award to Daisy Pierce, it's like she's the pinup girl. Like, I'm not saying that she doesn't deserve it. Yeah. And I'm not saying she's not a good leader. I'm just saying, like, is that not an obvious choice? Like, you're not going to... Like, what's to say that... There's Bri- nothing wrong with an obvious choice, though. No, but Bree Davey, I would argue, is probably as good a captain as Davey. Well, she doesn't play. So. Daisy. Yeah, but that doesn't matter. She's still the captain. And that's what I'm saying. It's not all about what happens on the field. Give it to Taylor Walker, because he captained the Crows, who were top of the ladder. Like, I'm not saying Tex is not a good captain. I'm just saying, like... As a as a sidebar conversation there, then should we get rid of the coach of the year award as well? Then no, disagree completely. Because can a, can a good no. coach can a good coach be a good coach in a bad team? Well, I think that the, like a, like a really bad yes, team. Yes, but I think the, the award factors in that. Does it? Well, does it? It might not factor in how it is in how it's awarded. But I would argue that if you saw an achievement where, like Stuart Jew, and if yeah. they finish ninth this year, then Stuart Jew should probably win the coach of the year, right? Like Hardwick was an obvious one last year, but that often happens in the EPL where they have the coach of the year is often a manager that staves off relegation hmm. because there's, there's different battles. And I understand that like in AFL, you don't get a lot from moving six spots from the bottom of the ladder to not just in the eight. But I feel like the coach, is, coach of the year award. But they're all, this, they're all still, they're all still very like results based. Yeah. I don't know. Well, Whereas, I don't have a problem with coach of the year being results based. Okay. Cause I think that as a coach, the ultimate objective measure is the results. You, you, buy, into I'm the, not you sure. buy into the Nathan Buckley mantra of we are in a well, I think that industry. No, I think good coaches focus on process. But eventually, like if you have five years and you don't get results, then people are going to ask questions. Like Because all, at the end of the day, the process has to lead somewhere. Like yeah. You can't just have process for the sake of process. I think captaincy is different. I think at the best clubs, the captain is just an extension of the coach. Yeah, exactly. But I also... I think the coach of the year award is much easier to measure. Yeah. Because it should rely more on the results. What I think you have with both of these awards is like like last year. Richmond made the grand final. Adelaide made the grand final. Oh, Hardwick coach of the year. Oh, Tex, captain of the year. And then it's like 
Oh, yeah, great. Who would have thought that? Good. Would never have guessed that. Like, but also, but no, but no one's crying the fact that Dusty won the Norm and the Brownlow, and oh, and Richmond also made the Granny. Like, no, but those good are... teams, good teams have good players, have good coaches, have good captains. Like, that's just yeah. how that's just yeah. success fosters success. I just yeah, I'm not sure that it needs to be an award. The AFLW VFLW rule changes are gordon. Yes, so shock, horror, memo time, ladies and gents. This time for the VFLW. And uh, it's more zones. More zones and, and really strict ones. But to be played within the uh, you know, the spirit of the game still. So VFL teams will need to have five players in their forward half at all stoppages this season as part of anti-density rules being trialled ahead of next year's AFL women's competition. Why? Because apparently they play low-scoring style, inverted commas, boring football. Which might be because they have less minutes. They have less minutes. They have less players in AFL in AFLW. So a- VFLW has 18 players, so that naturally sees an increase in scoring. And their games go for longer, which naturally sees an increase in scoring as well. Um... But yes, so every stoppage, every stoppage, there needs to be five players in your forward half. Forward half. Your forward half. So not a five-six-five. Needs to be five players in your forward half. So you, the way I see this is going to what's going to affect is it affects your midfield setup. So, well, surely they, your midfielders have to be more spaced. Well, yeah, but also what you usually do is you'll you'll set. So, say you're you're tri- uh, you're leading, and you want to make sure that you don't lose the contest behind behind your half of the field. Yeah. So you put midfielders behind the stoppage. They're still at the stoppage, so there's still six midfielders at the stoppage. But you set four on your defensive side and two on your attacking side. You can't do that anymore. In, in essence, depending on what other numbers you have around the yeah, ground. Yeah. So they're trying to make sure that you set up 50-50 all the time. Yeah, again, I'm not... It's just ridiculous. No, I'm not sure this is needed. It's not needed at all, and it doesn't aid anything. What will take, what will make the game better is more skillful players playing for longer, playing in more professional environments. So if you paid them more, gave them a longer season, and gave them just a surety that they were going to get paid in their contracts for longer than a year and that they could probably give up their day jobs, then they might actually get to a level where they could be considered professional athletes by everyone else looking on who doesn't know anything about this sport yet. Yeah. As opposed to saying, oh, let's treat you like under 10s and give you zones and make sure that you can, you know, play the game in its appropriate style and its appropriate spirit. What's the appropriate spirit? Winning the game of football when you're a competitive elite footballer. That's that's the spirit. Yeah. Giving coaches... Coaches want to see skillful footy because skillful teams win more games than unskillful teams. No, no coach is going out there deliberately to play unskillful footy. Okay, so the next question is, do you believe that the anti-density memo actually made a difference in the AFLW season? Or did you believe that the improvement was a natural evolution of the competition? Well, I think the improvement was the natural level of the competition. A, because we saw different people get the the awards at the end of the year. So obviously there's a spread of talent now. B, because the players that... Yeah, again, the players that took the moments and kind of raised the bar were, were different players as well. Yeah. And and see that we never saw... We didn't see a distinct change between round one and round two. Okay. Like, scoring didn't didn't rapidly increase. 
skill levels didn't rapidly increase. There's something that wasn't like no mistakes because we had more space. All we had was these awkward moments, three or four, like three or four for the year, where the flow and momentum of the game was killed because we had to reset these positions, or yeah, a yeah, team yeah. wasn't allowed to defend or lead because they had to reset the positions. Yeah, like the uh, Bulldogs against Melbourne yeah. in our last round. Yeah, when that all got stopped. And they point to they point to the Tac Cup as as the system where this happens, but it doesn't happen to this extreme. In the Tac Cup, you need to make sure that you have two forwards and two defenders in your forward fifty at, at any at any at any yep. stoppage. Yep. That's it. Not five, two. Yep. Two of your players, and they have to be matched by their defenders. So would you have a problem if they'd said, okay, let's have tack cup rules in the VFLW? No, I, would say that's, I would say that's acceptable. I'd be annoyed still because it's, it's senior. Because the reason why they're having tack cup is so you, you don't... So you let the players have enough space, essentially, so you can easily identify them and they can show off their skills yeah, yeah, in open yeah, yeah, play. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a farm, it's a farm system. This is not a farm system. This is the, the elite and the second most elite women's competitions in the land at this sport. So you you're just give not, them the rules and you play with them. So you're not dead against anti-density per se. You're against predominantly the severity of these restrictions. Yeah, I'm, I'm against them. I'm against the, the, the sport being restricted to such an extent where you can't play properly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree with you. Because I think in my from my perspective, when I thought of anti-density at the end of the year, I always expected it to be tack cup. Hmm. Because that's the thing that they've got a significant sample size of. Like, why would you not use the thing that's already been used? So when I... And to be fair, if you'd asked me, it's like a tack cup rules, oh, if that's what they were going to bring in, I'd probably be like, you know what? Okay, yeah. Like, give it a go. Like, see, we'll see how it, how it affects the game. There's clear evidence for what it will do, which I think is really important because they're not just fumbling around in the dark um, but I'm also like again you, like and we said this when the memo first came out like just just let them play like it'll naturally get better when you bring in all the things that you've talked about like and yeah I, I guess that's kind of where it sits to book club to book club which is not book club but a long form article club uh, we will tweet the link for the ESPN article in question, but the title, You'll Never Believe the Oblong Ball Behind Ben Simmons' Genius. Can I stop you right there? Go on. It's not an oblong ball. Well, okay, go on. An oblong is a two-dimensional shape, like a rectangle. What this actually is is an ellipsoid. Ellipsoid? An ellipsoid is a 3D ellipse. Do you want to take me back to year three maths? Well, you need to take this out. What about year three maths? I have... I have uh, Kevin cons- Arnovitz. Kevin the Unavitz, author of this article. He knows a lot about basketball. <laughs> he knows nothing about football. And it shows in this article, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My biggest gripe on this is that this is clearly written for an American audience. So some of the ways that Australian rules football, it's I'm, like, it's in hard his, to read if you de- know football. In, in his yeah. defence, that is his audience. He, he, he actually explains football quite well if you've never seen it before. Like, yeah, yeah. if you're explaining it to a Martian or an American... And sometimes not much difference because they just don't they don't go outside their own sphere. Like Americans aren't like Australian sports people in the sense they don't go hunting for Aussie rules. Where like we go hunting for NBA. Have or you NFL. ever seen the ESPN clips when they do make it on? Yeah, it's, how brilliant is it? There was the the Luke Shuey after the siren one made it. Anyway, different yeah. subject. Carry on. The fundamental thing I found about this though is it shows it's written for the American audience, but also written with American bias. So Ben Simmons. <laughs> But not about football. My main gripes come about Ben Simmons. So Ben Simmons is the most exciting, non-position-specific, big-bodied playmaker since LeBron James. 
Yep. He's having the biggest breakout rookie season since LeBron James. He's not going to be LeBron James because he didn't come out straight from high school. But it's he's the biggest... He he's going to be in the mold of LeBron James, yeah. a player that we haven't actually really seen for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's now two of them in the NBA at the same time. He is trying to explain Ben Simmons's ability at basketball as an Australian because of an Australian sport. Where in reality, he's very good at basketball because he played basketball for a very long time as a junior and was very good and then went to a US college in Div 1 did amazing things there, and got picked up as the number one draft pick in the NBA. His story is not that remarkable in the sense that he's very good at basketball, he was always very good at basketball, he's still very good at basketball, and he coincidentally played under 12s for Yarra Valley. <laughs> yeah, my favourite quote... Like, his footballing... My favourite quote in the article is that his best and fairest for Yarra Valley in the juniors was like an MVP. It's like, and it's I'm like nothing he like won. It. Like, I was captain of Brighton CC's under-15 cricket team. Yeah. I'm a long way off playing for Australia. Like... Yeah. And all these, like all the mythology around this, yeah, him yeah, being yeah. like he was bouncing off, he was bouncing it's a little bit big. He was off, bouncing, isn't it? A, he bouncing a Sharon in the uh, in the court at, in Philadelphia, and he like how he controls the football that's so similar to an American football is outstanding. I can bounce a footy. Well, like I think if you took any most Australian people can bounce footy, and you just wanted them to hold the ball, the fact yeah. that they know how to hold the ball would make yeah. them look like. Like when I took a footy out in England and people were like, it's a, like trying to hold it like a rugby ball, you could tell there was something different about how I held that ball. Yeah. It was majestic. Yeah. And I'm a spud of a footballer. But I reckon even my shitty hands would make you think that I had some idea. Yeah. And if you looked at me and you went, oh, tall people are good at Aussie rules, and you'd probably look at me and go, oh, he's six foot three. He might have been all right. Never seen me run. I'm a rock lobster. I can't jump. So, you know. I'm not great, but you yeah. know what I mean? You wouldn't know that just by seeing me pick up a Sharon. So yeah. there's a little bit of... And the Petrarca quote in the article, he honestly could have been a top five draft pick if he'd played in Australia and stayed playing Australian rules. I'm like... But it's such a commonly used phrase. But it's also such a like a... For everything like a, though. It's just yeah. a massive eye roll, like, because it's such a hypothetical. Like, you're never going to know what would have happened. And... Like, he might not have been that good. There's so many steps you have to go through from being good at under-14s to being, like, the best 18-year-old in the country. Like, there's a they're stratospheres apart. Yeah. Like, show promise at four. A lot of kids show promise in sports at 14, and they never go anywhere. And the number one thing that I took out of this is that how far Australian sport in general still has to go for respect in the major sporting markets. So we see the same thing in Ramble football. <laughs> Where, you know, we, we have one import playing with quite high profile Aaron Moy for Huddersfield in the Premier League. But we don't have consistent players coming out of the Australian system playing for high profile clubs in Europe because they don't consider Australia to be a good football nation, even though the Socceroos are in, inside the top 50 now in the world. Yeah, but let me stop you there because we're also a nation of, what, 22 million people. Hmm. So in terms of head of capita that we provide to various sporting leagues around the world, like, we're actually not doing a bad job if you look at it purely on that criteria. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like but, we have, but there are there are equal per capita nations doing far better than us in football. Absolutely. I've no Yes. But that's also about talent networks and being close to those talent networks. Yeah, but, it is but, a, but also the respect that, But also the respect of the actual league. So, like, people don't respect the A-League. People don't... And more importantly, people don't respect the NBL. Have you read Soconomics? So Soconomics is like for anyone that it's kind of like a money ball of soccer. And one of the things in there is like, why would you take the Brazilian 
Well, there's an, there's a chapter about like if he's a, if someone comes up to you and they're a footballer and they say they're Brazilian, your impression of them is it's like the Australian overseas cricketer in England. Mm. Like oh, we've got an Australian fast bowler. If you're an Australian soccer player. Like, that doesn't come with any esteem. Yeah, like, you exactly. may as well be from Fiji, for Christ's sake. Yeah. And that's kind of what you're getting at. Yeah, here. But, like, the thing is that I, I get the main... And there's, I'll link another piece in here as well. So, I'm compa- comparing apples to oranges to an extent with these two pieces. But there was a piece written about uh, by Grantland uh, writer, rest in peace, Grantland, the amazing, amazing work he did there, by a guy called Brian Phillips called A Sea of Crisis. Mm-hmm. And it was about sumo wrestling. Yep. And so Americans know nothing about sumo wrestling. Yeah. So he he went and tried to do a profile piece and explain sumo wrestling by immersing himself in sumo wrestling. Mm-hmm. I would much prefer this piece be immersed in Ben Simmons and the AFL aspect be a part of it. Because mm. is he is this is this being pitched like we found this on the espn.com.au site. So is he pitching this to Australians or is he pitching this to Americans? If he's pitching it to Americans, he hasn't done enough to explain football to them. And he's not enough to explain Ben Simmons' connection to football other than he's picked a football up before and he played when he was 12. Interesting. If it's pitched to Aussies, then he needs to lift his game in terms of his knowledge of, of the sport and how it compares with basketball. Because there actually are quite a lot of comparisons with basketball to, there are, to AFL. Yes. In terms of the spatial awareness required, it's a 360-degree three, sport. We see a lot of like basketballs that go into AFL. Was well, so like, yeah. Conti and Phillips and Malloy. There's, there's clear Bontepelli. There's, there clearly, clear, some, there's yeah. clearly some transferable skills. But none of that's gone into, and this article makes Ben Simmons sound like he's the first person to ever play football and go on and play basketball. Well, that, I think, was one of the frustrations reading it. Mm. I was like, okay, so why have you not mentioned Conti? And why mm. have you not mentioned Aaron Phillips? And why have you not mentioned Corey yeah. Malloy? And why have you not mentioned Scott Pendlebury? And why have you not mentioned Marcus Bontepelli? Because when I read this, I straight away went... Oh, if Ben Simmons has gone the other way, then oh, there's lots of people that have come this way. So there's clearly some crossover here, which was part of the reason that when someone said, "Oh, who would you like to interview?" and "Oh, let's interview Conti because that's interesting," mm. like I think there yeah, there was some frustrating ex- exclusions from this. And again, it comes down to the brief. So it was written for digital, probably written with mobile in mind. So it has to be shorter than has to be shorter than probably when he wanted, what, he, what he wanted. But I feel like he needed to pick and choose. So is this a piece about Ben Simmons? Is this a piece about the oblong ball? Like, is it about both? If it's about both, then probably don't do it because it, it, you're just scratching the surface on both. And there's enough. And there's enough story as a personality yeah. and as and as you know an outsider breaking in and becoming the biggest star this year in, in NBA. There's enough just on Ben Simmons to talk about Ben Simmons and have have two lines on the fact that he played Aussie rules. Yeah. Or if you want to do an expose on Aussie rules and let Americans know that this sport's amazing and maybe expect more basketballs to come from Australia because of it, then do a whole thing on the oblong ball that made Ben Simmons great, but the actual article's about the oblong ball, not about Ben Simmons. Yeah. If you only have the 1,600 words, whatever it is, like to that. talk about it. Yeah, because the hardest thing is, when I read this piece, I wanted to do something similar when I spoke to Conti yeah. in terms of the comparisons of sports and take out all the examples of her playing basketball and oh my god this is like what she did here in football and then I realised that that's like a 5,000 word piece mm. like to go through and explain all of that properly so when I interviewed her I wanted to give some merit to it but mainly through things that she'd said rather than being like going searching for a buckload of evidence because what I kind of found there was that for the 1,500 words I had that I wanted to write it was much much easier to focus on the human element of her story and make it less about her codes and more about her. Yeah. And I think that was ultimately... Th- those decisions are always difficult. And if you get caught in between modes and between what you're trying to do and what you're trying to do not being compatible with your word count, 
you're in a minefield of problems. So like there's bits of this piece you go, nice. It's a nice it's a nice glossy mag read to read in your lunch break, but it's nothing more than that in my opinion. Interesting. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I, I thought that the actual elements of Simmons' demeanour were far more interesting than the actual mm. comparisons himself. Because I was kind of like, oh yeah, that's cool. But it's like, you know. And he's not a cross... At the end of the day, he's not a cross code. This is not Jared Hayne who played... 15 years of rugby rugby no. league and then and actually made it into the NFL. That's well, where that's where you compare the codes. Well, I reckon this would have been a better piece. And I'm still kind of waiting for someone to write this. But like how Aaron Phillips didn't play football from the age of 13 or 14 and he's now like the best footballer in the land almost. Like that's the piece that you want to read in this style. Like mm. that that is literally like and that's a book like that's like someone needs to go and write a 25,000 word 30,000 word book about Erin Phillips and how she did this and that's kind of when I read this I'm like ah, I reckon there were better subjects yeah. like again not subjects that live in America so therefore harder for you to access but like I feel like there were better subjects that could have been the subject of this piece we'll leave today's episode of the people's game there but next week uh, we're looking forward to well, I'm not sure how the quality of the football will be on Friday night, but a classic Collingwood and Carlton encounter at the MCG. Richmond will go into battle with Hawthorne on Sunday in a, a clinch game now um, that looks really important for both of those sides in terms of getting their seasons off to a good start. Um, we've also got, obviously, some more chatter about VFLW, practice matches starting to fire up. And I guess if you have any thoughts, questions, queries, comments, feedback, feel free to send them through. We always appreciate it.